though it's not that dangerous because they see their family get it and friends and whatever and people yeah. seem fine or it just gets swept under the rug and maybe they don't maybe they don't we see run yep, you're good to go. okie doke cool yeah no it is uh it is crazy i mean y'all are probably too young to remember but tiananmen square i mean yeah there were that was that that felt like that may have been kind of the the start of of something real and even though the communist party remained in power they have been more responsive to people than like in my lifetime since then so yeah it's hard for me to tell like even with Tiananmen, people thought Deng Xiaoping was going to be this whatever really Western democracy capitalism guy, and then he sent tanks in to just absolutely yeah. demolish people. Yeah. So you know, it, I think if I think if the party is pushed too far, they'll just take people's heads off and show who's boss and move on from there. Well, that's a, the thing I don't understand is. The policy in China has always been, we have a lot of resources in people, so we'll we'll go ahead and squander our resources somewhat. They build a building and 25 people die building it. They don't really care, right? Yeah. So it's really weird to me that they have this zero tolerance COVID policy, particularly when they were limiting births not too long ago. Yeah, I think it's a form of control, right? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm showing how much you need the government. I wonder I wonder if it's also they have this real estate sector that's clearly bloated. That's clearly you know the the stability of society is riding on people's the value of their homes not going down. So they don't want to raise interest rates because that might force down the property sector in China. How do you slow down the economy from overheating and causing too much inflation without raising interest rates? You just you make people not do stuff. So maybe they're just locking people down to slow down the economy without having to raise interest rates. Daughter Sarah has one take on it, and she's my 17-year-old that will run the world one day. We're not sure for good or for evil, but she she's going <laughs> to run it. The Her take is China is defensive about COVID. I probably leaked as an accident out of a lab. And to cover up, they're taking COVID very seriously, zero policy, you know, zero policy, et cetera, that if they didn't really care, they'd be, eh, whatever. But the fact they're taking it so seriously looks like, okay, maybe they weren't responsible for it. You and know? we totally didn't do this. Look you at us. To look, at, <laughs> look at us. So. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, it's interesting. Because, yeah. I mean, you start talking about China and Growth trajectories from here to here really, really matter, mm. you know? Not I only mean, for China, but for the whole world. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Exactly. Mean, just today, oil prices were down like five bucks and then back up, you know, five bucks just just based on the whims of China and yeah, whether or not they're going to use a bunch of oil. Yeah. No, exactly. I, 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 I. Hey 
everybody. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. My guests today are the Montrose Lane Founders. And do y'all have other titles? Or is it just Founders? Uh, is there a managing partner in there or something? We're both managing partners. I don't... Whatever. Founders. <laughs> you know, we were literally one glass of wine away from me at Kane sending an email saying, we're all freaking associates from this moment going <laughs> forward because... Oh, so t- y'all are a small enough shop that y'all don't get this, but boy, we used to have people get so upset about their titles just at any moment, you know? And I was like, I don't even know what your title is. Why are you griping about <laughs> Jeremy Arndt and Ryan Gurney, though, are here. So uh, glad to have you guys. Associates of Montrose Lane. So real quick, because my mom listens to the podcast, one of you real quick, give the Montrose Lane commercial. Who are y'all? What do y'all do? Just so mom will be caught up. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. We uh, So we're a private equity slash venture capital fund. Um, we raise funds from uh, investors, so institutions, wealthy individuals, family offices, and, and, and those types. Uh, and then we take those funds and invest those into technology companies that are selling into the broader energy industry. Um, and the types of things that we invest in have to hit various criteria. Uh, but really what we're looking for are companies that make energy, one, more affordable, two, safer for the people that work in energy, and three, better for the environment. Um, and so that's that's our goal. Uh, we've invested in 10 companies to date uh, across two funds. Um, right now, you know, we're, we're at a point where we are helping to hopefully help those companies grow, uh, invest additional capital into those companies as needed, uh, and then eventually go out and, and try to raise a third fund uh, to expand uh, on, on what we've already done. And note of full disclosure, uh, Mom, this is the venture capital fund that I'm on the advisory board of. And so uh, we'll say that. I'm not sure what advisory board means other than maybe like older brother, <laughs> Uncle Chuck. Maybe. Hang out sometimes. Yeah. Hang, hang, hang out, out sometimes. Some but I, I would just add, add on to Jeremy. So the three criteria that we typically have when we uh, invest in a company is, one, software is a primary product or service, so we're not investing in anything too hardware heavy. Two, customers in the energy space. We've got a broad definition of energy. That can include oil and gas, can include other forms of energy, et cetera. Uh, we think all those forms of energy are relevant will grow and be a big part of the overall supply chain go forward. Uh, and then last is post-revenue. So these are companies that have you know some scale. And then when we invest, that capital goes to, to help fuel uh, growth uh, after that company has found product market fit. So what what years were Fund 1 and Fund 2 raised in? Yeah, so we raised Fund 1 in 2017 and 2018. Uh, and then we ra- raised Fund 2 in 2019 and then closed in 2020. And so, and how many companies, because you've had a, a liquidation event, right? Correct. You sold Mineral Soft and knock on wood, did really well with that. Yep. Um, how many companies you got? So nine? So we've invested in 10 total, Okay. Uh, six in each fund, and there's two crossovers. So that's going to be a minus two there. Uh, and then we've got eight active companies today. As you mentioned, we sold one and then we had one that uh, we uh, ended up closing. Gotcha. So the, because... What I get questioned a lot from with people talking about y'all, uh, I'll throw, I'll just kind of throw this out there in no random order is one, how the portfolio do through COVID? Um, and did you guys notice kind of any trends during COVID 
maybe that are different than than before uh, COVID and when you were originally raising the funds? Yeah, I would say, I mean, look, in short, 2020 and COVID was was challenging. Uh, that said, I, I was pleased with term, in terms of how our portfolio performed. When I say it was challenging, most of our companies have customers that are upstream oil and gas operators. In 2020, when you know, negative when prices uh, when oil prices go negative, there's a state of shock in those upstream producers. You could have the absolute best technology that you know, delivers a ton of value, et cetera, et cetera. But the issue is that state of shock led to you know, kind of chaos in those organizations where your internal champion didn't know if he or she was going to have a job, let alone the ability to in- invest in a technology suite and change a, a you know, legacy process. So that state of shock and that state of confusion and the state of just kind of disarray made it challenging for our companies to sell new licenses uh, to new customers. In contrast, what we found with our existing customers is we didn't lose customers, broadly speaking, uh, maybe with the exception of some M&A events. But what we found is a number of heads were were removed from upstream operators, but then we found our customers leaning more into technology because that technology allowed them to be more efficient with fewer heads. Uh, so we were pleased with that. But look, when we underwrote these investments at time zero, we anticipated growth year after year, not a you know flat, uh, effectively, year in between. Because that was the, the theory I've had that I talked about a lot on the uh, podcast was, you know, I kind of lay out the thesis that energy's always been a lottery ticket business, right? At the end of the day, you could get really rich through no fault of your own. The Saudis embargo, oil prices triple, lo and behold, you're rich. You can, you know, shoot 3D seismic and all of a sudden there's a big, huge structure no one's ever seen before. You drill it and you got a 10 million barrel, you know, field, whatever the case may be. Just a lot of things, uh, like I say, lottery ticket that can make you rich. And so we as an industry spend a lot of money doing lottery, getting ourselves more lottery tickets, if you will. And then the nickel and dime type stuff that other businesses run and squeeze efficiencies out of like Amazon or whatever. We've just been horrific as a business doing that because it didn't give us another lottery ticket. And I think a lot of the technology stuff that you guys invest in are about nickels and dimes in terms of running more efficient type businesses. And so it's interesting to hear you say that customers didn't really leave you during that because I, I feel like there was pretty big seismic shift in terms of, no pun intended, in terms of people going, okay, nickel and dimes matter now that oil's at minus 37. We're going to really have to watch that. Yeah, I think it matters a lot when you have a thin positive margin. Um, I think what happened in 2020, and then I think the sentiment carried over into 21, was a at our customer base of of you know we have a broad customer base, but I'm just talking about the oil and gas companies because that that industry was just thrown for a huge loop and as a result of COVID, at those companies you went you know you didn't have thin margins you had negative margins. You you were losing money. People were being fired. It, the general popular sentiment was that oil and gas was going away. And so the people at the actual people making purchasing decisions had a lot of volatility in their lives, uh, in their professional lives. 
and they weren't in the mood to go sign a contract to go spend, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars on a technology because that could be a career limiting decision. And, and in 2020 and 2021 could have put you on the block to get fired along with a lot of other people that are getting fired in oil and gas. So you had that factor. And then you had the just broader, I think, social sentiment of, as I mentioned, that oil and gas is going away. Uh, that, you know, BP came out and said we're at peak oil uh, demand. Um, and when a big oil producer comes out and says that, much less a bunch of governments and, and, and other groups. And Kathy Wood. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, you, you can't help but to at least wonder. Um, and I think a lot of people wondered, including, uh, you know, people in, in the oil and gas industry. And I, you saw a lot of investment shift from, uh, all right, well, we're going to go explore for, for new fields. We're going to go invest in drilling new wells. I mean, of course, you're not going to do that when uh, the very essence of the industry is is in question. Um, and so I, I think what happened with, with uh, a lot of our customer base was that they said, hey, look, we got to spend our time focused on other things. Um, and we got to spend our time wondering if we're going to have a job. I think what has changed in sort of, you know, back end of 21 and, and through to today is a real firming up of views, maybe not in the world, but certainly in the oil and gas industry that, all right, feels very healthy. I'm going to have a job. Um, I, I still have the capital markets and, uh, you know, maybe society as a whole telling me that I need to be very thoughtful about my capital spend and be, be very thoughtful about drilling new wells. Um, so I need to be hyper efficient in my existing operations. Um, and meanwhile, as Ryan mentioned, a lot of people in my industry lost their jobs uh, and, and we're not exactly hustling to go rehire those people in a lot of circumstances. And so we have to invest more in technology to allow for the operations of these companies in an efficient manner. Um, and so I, th I think that has been a big tailwind for our companies uh, is the efficiency play. Another big tailwind has been the, the push towards limiting greenhouse gas emissions, uh, you know, broadly labeled you know, as, as ESG. Um, and, and that has been a huge tailwind for our companies, uh, primarily because, look, like the best way you, you could reduce greenhouse gas emissions, if that is your goal, is to look at existing industry that is producing a lot of greenhouse gas emissions and make that industry more efficient, reduce the emissions that that industry is producing. Um, and, and that that in large part is what our companies and, and the types of companies that we invest in uh, go out there and do. So that that has been a, a second tailwind that's really started to take hold, um, you know, through 21 and, and through today. And I hate this for the humanity side of it. So I don't want to sound like I'm a cheerleader for it in any way, shape or form and being a victim of the, uh, of the, of the acts, if you will, during that period, it also feels like the industry just got a lot younger too, that a lot of the, the mm -hmm. people that were let go were the older, higher paid type folks to and and younger people are just more adept more used to using technology than than older folks i think that's exactly right and there's been a there had been a distribution of, of ages because not a lot of people came into the industry in the prior downturn in the, in the 80s so as those people are, leave the industry they're being replaced by people that are in their you know 30s to, to 40s that are just in general more receptive to technology technology which has been a good trend and I think it, there's some spillover from other technologies, right? The longer you use one of our portfolio companies in, in your operations, the more you trust that 
another technology that solves a different problem might actually work. Um, you know, so we, when we first came into this, it was very little use of digital technology um, among our customer base in the types of things that we were investing in, you know, like cloud-based specific, um, uh, you know, specific either operational or back office or, you know, field management or whatever goals um, just weren't, people weren't using digital technology to do that. And so I think you have to break through that a little bit and say, all right, look, this, this part has worked out really well for you. Let's see if we can also uh, help out in this other part of the business. Because I think you're getting to a point too, where if people can't do something on their iPhone, they actually have a problem. I mean, it's, you know, you throw paper, you throw Excel on the computer in front of people and it's just, Hey, there's gotta be. So I would think there's actually pull now happening of why don't we have an app that, that solves this problem? Yeah. I, I think the phones broadly, I think changed a lot of people's perspectives on, on technology and how much that can help you. Um, I, just, this is a total aside, but I find it fascinating. Like we, as people, have kind of made this trade of I'm going to give up all kinds of privacy or whatever privacy is worth to you um, to have this phone that's on me, at least for me, literally 24 seven, like I sleep next to my phone. Um, and, you know, I, I know that my phone is logging everything I'm saying and, you know, whether that goes and influences the ads that are on my phone or at the ads I get in my email or that you know, say I'm a, a super criminal and the NSA is, you know, tapping into what I'm saying. Somewhere in between those, that's always happening. And generally I'm okay with that because this thing makes me so efficient. I can just do so many things from anywhere in the world. I save so much time in my day-to-day -day life than I would without this thing um, that it's unthinkable to get rid of it. And, and we think that as, you know, technology progresses, as business just mindsets and processes progress, that you won't be able to run an energy company or really any any company without a, a heavy investment in digital technology, because similar to how it makes my individual life a lot more efficient, saves me a lot of time so I can go do other things. I think from a business standpoint, every time, every day that goes by, we're going to get a little bit more efficient by leveraging those technologies. And, and that's going to be very good for uh, really everyone in the industry and the customers of, of our industry. Yeah, I love the joke about how you're walking through your house talking to Alexa and, you know, whatever. And you go, oh, my God, you know, Alexa's listening to me and Siri's like, yeah, she's a bitch. Because <laughs> like, uh, there's no question that they are, they are listening. But I think the other thing that comes into play, or at least, at least what I'm seeing, and I'll say this as a statement, but just get y'all's take on it, too, is... You know, I've talked because I, I hear all the time, you know, people reaching out on Twitter or LinkedIn, whatever. Hey, when's capital going to come back into the industry and talking upstream? And I always say it's when a CIO can become a former CIO for not having energy exposure. Yeah. And, you know, at some way, shape or form, a CIO is graded by the S&P 500. There's some take or twist or formula based on it, mm. but it all comes back to basically the S&P 500. And when you're 5%, 6%, you can actually still avoid energy and heat, hit your hurdles or be close enough that you're not gonna be a former 
CIO. And so I think one of the things that's becoming more apparent to people is my capital to go grow my business is actually my cash flow. And I think you hear nickel people talking about nickels and dimes and saving it because that's my future capex is coming out of that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think cash flow is going to be a big part of it. I also think allowing investors, giving investors the ammo to feel good about their investment in traditional oil and gas, I think will be important. We are being a good steward and we can show it based on these metrics and these are this is how we've trended and this is what we've done to improve those those trends. <clears throat> I think if you can generate cash flow and show that you're a good steward, I, I think that's where the capital will go. And I agree with you. It's only a matter of time. Candidly, we're beginning to see it in our business where I'd say 2017, not a lot of capital. 18, 19, things increased. 2021, nada. Uh, back half of 22, we've begun, we've begun to see some generalists reach out to us saying, hey, can you tell us about your portfolio? What's going on here? Because I think they do look at the broad S&P and say, what is outperforming energy? Okay, maybe this is a space we should look at in the context of software investment. So early innings, but I think it is only a matter of time. Yeah, I think you'll have a re-rate of capital back into the industry. I think it'll take longer than we think because, and just to you know clarify, CIO, you mean chief investment officer, not chief information officer. But um, uh, it, I think that person has to miss for many quarters. I don't think it's a couple of quarters or even a year. I think it's like eight quarters in a row of the energy segment of the S&P outperforming the other segments. And, you know, it's been doing that so far this year. Uh, but I, I think that it'll take more time before you see a lot of the institutional folks come back in and say, okay, we want to go fund drilling programs uh, in the oil and gas industry. Uh, but I do think that that inevitably happens because the dearth of capital is, as long as capital isn't coming in, those returns are going to be really high. Um, and so it's almost a, a force of, a, or a fact of nature uh, that that capital will be forced back in because the returns are going to be high. Um, so I think that'll happen. And then also with higher cost capital, I mean, the Fed funds rate is now 4%, uh, you know, in a, in a couple of weeks, it'll probably be something higher than that. And a couple of months after that, even higher than that. Um, so discount rates for everything, any capital asset are, are going up, which means the values of any future cash flows are going down. Um, and so I think we'll also have a big, you know, reallocation away from future cash flows, which might be, Hey, I got a great thing uh, that in 2040 is going to be really valuable uh, and, and start putting off a lot of cash. You know, in 2020 and 2021, when, when we had a 0% Fed funds rate, you could make that make sense. You can make that really valuable. Um, and I think that's why you saw a lot of those companies trade for very high values, both publicly and, and privately. But now with higher cost capital, you need those cash flows today. Um, and the cash flow today is worth a lot more than the cash flow tomorrow. And so I think industries like oil and gas that are very cash flow positive today, um, and we see that with each earnings report that comes out from particularly the EMP companies, those are going to end up attracting more capital on a relative basis because I want a quick return on my capital because my capital is very expensive. Um, so I, I think for those two reasons that we we will have more cap capital come into energy and uh, specifically into you know near-term cash flow energy. Uh, but I, I think I continue to think it'll be a little bit because you've also had a lot of uh, investors out there essentially either privately or publicly swear off traditional energy. 
And it's hard to then circle back and say, all right, well, just kidding, never mind. I think that'll come. It just takes, it'll take some time. And it, I think to Ryan's point, we got to make that message easy. And, and I think our, our investments do make that message easy for, for the reasons I talked about. Um, if we're going to be using all this energy, gosh, we sure do want it to be affordable, safe for the people that work in it, and, and as good for the environment as it possibly can be. Uh, and, and I think through efficiency and transparency, we can help drive a lot of that. Do you think the war in Ukraine has kind of changed that in terms of, let's call it, maybe acceptance is too strong a word, but at least at least somewhat mitigating the, the anti-hydrocarbon bans that have happened? Because I think at least what I've heard from one of the large bulge bracket investment banks is it's actually on their ESG list of getting natural gas to Europe i.e. that's a positive now. Does that help or? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the EU is now referring to natural gas as a, you know, a green energy source. And um, so I think it, I look, saying that helps is kind of, it feels macabre because, yeah, you know, no, like, that's fair. We don't want, certainly don't want people dying to help something or the view of that. Um I think where it has changed perspective, I guess, is around security. Um, you know, I, I think in 2020 and 2021, uh, th there was a, a view that energy is almost limitless, um, you know, that uh, oil, gas, coal are always going to be really cheap um, and always going to be there as a backup plan. And so we should be investing a lot of money and a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of brain power into what comes next. Um, and I think what Russia rolling tanks into Ukraine showed us is that energy is more than just turning on the light switch. Energy is security. Um, and so much of our lives revolve around the availability and the affordability of energy uh, that we need to take that supply chain very seriously and make sure that we have, you know, not only access to the supply, but the means of production of that supply. Um, so I... I think that has started to work its way in a little bit, the, the energy security argument. Um, but probably, I, I still think it just comes down to more than anything, just economics. And I think for opinions to really change, you're, you're going to have to see people look up and they say, I am, my life is worse because we had bad energy policy. Um, and I think we're a ways away from that before, before there's a broad recognition of that. It's easy for us to sit here and talk about it because we, we have a you know generally more exposure to the energy industry, more experience in the energy industry, but I think for the the average person to say, all right, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe we maybe we should have spent more time, uh, per, you know, securing our own production around fossil fuels. Uh, I think that's still a ways away. Because I mean, Ryan, there's no doubt the transition is happening. I mean, and it's not for all the libertarian in me wanting to say it's big, bad government making us do that. It's not. It's consumers have chosen this. Companies have chosen this. Private entities have chosen this. And I mean, we are going to see a transition. We're going to see a lot more in the way of renewables, et cetera. And so how do you guys see that one kind of playing out Two, seeing opportunities in that? Yeah, I, th I think what I struggle with is I agree with you. I think transition is happening. I think 
we should have as many sources of energy as we possibly can. That, that's a great thing for all parties. <laughs> and in theory, you should lower the cost of energy for all parties. What, what I struggle with is the vilification of, I should say, oil and gas in that process. Like it doesn't need to be oil and gas is terrible. All these other things are, you know, gumdrops and you know, fairyland. It's like, okay, let's just capitalize both and grow both as the overall energy demand grows. So I think that's the nuance that that we get hung up on uh, because it, it doesn't seem fair to the traditional energy side of the equation. And then it results in a lot of capital going to the transition side and ultimately you know, bidding down potential returns because that is a smaller market today. So look, I agree. I think transition is happening. I think we'll have more and more forms and sources of energy, uh, but I, I feel like it's gone too far in terms of vilifying what feeds us today. Yeah. So two things on that. One, from our from our investment thesis standpoint, we want to invest in technologies that serve A, oil and gas, B, every other part of the, the uh, uh, energy spectrum, and really any sort of industry around the world. That's the ultimate goal, right? Uh, we have a competitive edge in going and investing in companies that sell into the energy space. And so that's where we spend our time. But ultimately, we want our companies to sell to whoever, you know, it, governments, other industry, consumers, whoever wants to buy a product or a version of a product that, that our companies are, are making. Um, so we're pretty indifferent to what the energy mix is from a, uh, you know, company investment thesis standpoint. Uh, we just want to invest in the best companies that provide the best services, uh, create more, you know, make energy more affordable, safer, and better for the environment, no matter that, that source of energy. Um, you know, as it relates to the energy transition, I, I think it came on really strong and fast. It's just, you know, my personal views because of cheap capital. Um, you know, as I mentioned, like when you have a 0% Fed funds rate, you have a really low discount rate. Um, you know, you got the 10-year treasury trading near zero. Uh, you have you had, uh, government bonds in Europe trading a negative returns. Uh, so capital is essentially close to free. And so those, you know, if you have a great technology that if this really hits, it could be worth a lot, then that even today is worth a lot. I think what, what is a huge threat to energy transition, at least for the, you know, for lack of a better word, the fringier further out cash flow opportunities, I think interest rates are a huge threat to that. Um, and I think that will, will slow down, maybe not today, maybe not next year, but it will eventually slow down the capital flows into that space, which... I think will be a big challenge for the energy transition space. Um, I don't think that's a challenge for like wind and solar, which is already out there, but I think it is a challenge for say, like, you know, building out a whole uh, hydrogen uh, ecosystem and, and infrastructure around all that. Um, you know, another aspect of that is uh, it, it, I used to, I used to work at uh, TPH and Dan Pickering always used to say, no one, nobody should ever say this time it's different. Um, and, you know, this does look, it's, it's like an exaggerated version of the first uh, clean tech wave that was in the 2000s, right? Uh, a lot less capital went into that. I think there was a lot less belief in that. Um, and, and the argument that time around was more around independence from Middle East fossil fuels than it was uh, around saving the environment, reducing climate change, etc. So you have some differences, but at the end of the day, you have some very similar things. 
You had very low interest rates coming, you know, coming out of the dot-com bust mixed with 9-11. Uh, and then you saw interest rates start to ramp back up in, you know, 06, 07, 08. And you saw the collapse of that, uh, that clean tech wave. This looks pretty similar in that regard, right? I mean, you've had very, very low interest rates, very low cost of capital, and now that's ramping up very, very quickly. So we'll see if it can survive. Um, but my guess is that the quantum of capital uh, and certainly the pricing of that capital will change dramatically, which will uh, change the dynamic of, of w- you know, what people believe has value. So one, one uh, kind of funny story to that point, Jim Wazell, who is one of my dad's best friends from high school, was president of Houston Natural Gas when it merged with Internorth to become Enron. And as he likes to say, I'm a dirt under the fingernails type guy. Ken Lay liked his MBA types. And so I was gently shown the door uh, and all. But so back when I was at Stevens in the late 90s, early 2000s, I became a power technology guy because oil was at $8 a barrel and nothing was happening. So flywheels, fuel cell batteries, all that sort of stuff. I was spending a lot of time there. And Jim and I would go eat lunch and he was so well versed in all this stuff that I was like, this is amazing that you're keeping up. And his story was always, oh, Chuck, we've been doing that. We did it in the 60s. We did it in the 70s. We did did it in the 80s. These technologies aren't really that new. It seems like they pop up every 10 to 12 years and we refine them and spend more capital on them for various sorts of reasons. So I kind of always... uh, uh, found that story pretty funny that he knew all all about that stuff. The second thing that I think is really important, and I'll probably close with asking you guys these questions. This has kind of been my question of the year on the podcast is if I made you energy czar and you could put one policy in place, you know, what is that policy? We'll get to that. But if if I ask that to of myself, I think the key to any of this transition is, I mean, if we look back, we've spent, I forget what Curry at Goldman said, what, $4 trillion on this. And we've gone from 82% of our electricity being generated uh, by hydrocarbons to 81%. So in it, in effect, we've only really had addition. We haven't had, had transition, if you will. But to be able to, to, transition and to not spend, let's call it $150 trillion and maybe only spend $25 trillion or whatever, whatever the math is, I think one of the things you have to appreciate is the technologies that went out are usually the ones that are incremental to the existing energy infrastructure that we have because you're always competing with the marginal barrel or the marginal MCF coming off that. And so, yeah, if we were starting an energy system today, would we use hydrogen? Maybe so, but we're not. Mm-hmm. And we've got pipes everywhere that do this and that. And so I think, I think that's one of the things that I think is really important and deserves a thoughtful conversation as opposed to a bunch of demagoguing, because at the end of the day, that's going to happen. And I think that's where you guys are going to, be important is that stuff's got to talk to each other, you know? Okay, I totally agree. The The grid is only getting increasingly complex and the energy supply chain is getting increasingly, increasingly complex. So how do you make sense of that? And how do you optimize that system? 
uh, I think software can do it a lot better than people can. Yeah, it's also like I heard that same Curry, uh, uh, Curie, Curry, however he pronounces it, that Goldman guy's uh, podcast. And uh, what struck me is I wonder how he's, I wonder whatever statistic he's looking at for the 82% to 81%, what if you were to lump in biomass with hydrocarbons? Because you know, what is biomass, but like a modern coal, you just haven't given it time to age. You're just burning a tree instead of burning an old tree. It's fresh wine, yeah, not aged yeah, wine. Yeah. yeah, you just have to chop down the tree uh, versus dig it up from underground. Um, but I bet if you'd lumped in biomass, which is generally considered a green fuel, oddly, that it actually like probably on a percentage basis, hydrocarbons have gone up. Um, so I, I tend to agree with you. Everything's going to compete on the margin, no, you know, how, whatever measure BTUs or whatever measure of energy or heat you want to measure it on, you're going to end up competing there. Uh, and different energy forms are better for different uses, you know, like flying an airplane is pretty hard to do with electricity. Um, but ultimately that all, that all competes. And that's a really good thing because it allows us as a society to try out different things, see what is competitive, see what's not competitive, and then spend more time, money, effort, et cetera, going after the things that uh, are best for humanity. I think the really hard thing sitting in y'all's seat, and again, I'll say this is a statement, and you guys both opine on this. I think the hard thing for you guys is looking at this wave that's going to happen, and it is happening, transition. I mean, we're just going to throw a lot of money at it. It really comes down to you've got to be able to be alpha pickers. I mean, you've really got to get in there and figure out what's going to win and what's not going to win, what's not going to going to win. Because at the end of the day, with that much money being thrown at things, yeah, things will continue to go up in value. But at the same time, it'll stop at some point. We've seen that with every bubble that's ever happened, starting with the tulips, or, you know, with the Internet, with the trains in England in the 1800s. And so I think that's going to be the big challenge for you guys sitting there sorting through that stuff is just, OK, what is actually going to be a winner versus what is just getting caught up in this tide? Yeah, 100 percent agree. Um, and, you know, look, I, I think that's through all this, that's a, a lot of the reason that we have stayed the course as it were on all forms of energy, uh, not just new energy or, or alternatives. Um, it, it would be much easier for us to just say, hey, we're never financing another company that goes and sells into the oil and gas space. And so uh, you can, you know, dear whatever institutional investors, you can invest in us with a clean conscience and, and so forth. But, uh, you know, A, I just don't think that's good for humanity. Uh, but B, I think that we can differentiate ourselves by saying, look, we're going to look at the entire energy spectrum. We're going to look at, you know, how are these companies making that energy spectrum better for the for the uh, end consumer and for that industry itself? And then we can compare, hey, what is the market size? What is the pricing? How, where can I get a, a, for lack of a better phrase, better deal uh, in that and, and compare across that? Uh, so... We think that that is very, very important um, because otherwise you're going to find yourself just investing in whatever the current wave is uh, because you've you've limited yourself to what you will go out there and and, and do. Um, so 
for us, investing across that energy spectrum is, is very, very important. And helping that entire energy spectrum is very, very important because they all will compete and they'll all hopefully get a little bit better every day. Give me something that you know today about investing in companies that you didn't in 2017 when you started this. Jeez, it's a long list. Um, yeah, I was about to say, we could do a whole series of the podcast uh, on that. Yeah. Look, it's a great question. I would say a couple things. One, I'll state, an, state the obvious, then I'll give some detail. But at the end of the day, it's all about people uh, that you invest in. Um, you know, it, it's the classic saying of an A-plus team with a C product is going to be a good outcome. A C team with an A-plus product is going to be a terrible outcome. Uh, and that's what we've seen, you know, time and time again. It's all about the people and putting the appropriate and you know, competent leaders in place. Have you figured out how to get better judging people over time? And what I, and I'll even go first on this is what I figured out is is that my gut from early meetings was generally right and yeah. I just needed to start listening to it more and more and I had 100%. to be and I had to be willing to just walk away. Yeah, and I think what happens is I couldn't agree more because what happens is you might not be certain about the person, but you get excited about the opportunity and the market. Well, you know, maybe with some tweaks, it'll be okay. Yeah. And then you re then you realize after you get married to that person, they only get, I shouldn't say it only gets worse, but kind of, kind of does like those things that you were concerned about only become bigger and bigger and more of an issue. So totally agree. Uh, and I think you know, trusting your gut is, is, is critical. Ken Hirsch has a great line. Yellow lights rarely go green. <laughs> so, yeah. so true. Yeah. No, it, it rarely gets better over time. Especially with people. Like, it, If your gut is that this is a weird technology or a weird market or something, I, I think you can find enough evidence with further research and whatever to convince yourself that, no, I, my initial instinct was wrong on that. Now I believe that this is a big enough market or what have you. With people, people are just so complex that you won't there really is no more investigating. You can talk to everyone they've ever known and you, you're still, you're still, I think, relying on that, on that gut feeling. Um, and to answer your question, I, I wish, I wish that we uh, would have spent or, or given more credence to that initial uh, out of the gate gut feeling of this is or is not the right person to run this company. Um, because that, that is where I think we, we have probably made the most mistakes. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, just to be clear, I think now where we sit, we're very pleased with our management teams. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're in, in a good spot with some really great leaders that are doing great things. But it's definitely been uh, a journey along the way and major learnings for us. Yeah. No, it's it's uh, it's always it's always in hindsight you sit there. And when you're being intellectually honest with yourself, you're like, man, I saw that in the first meeting, you yeah. know the guy or the gal said this and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense or whatever. So yeah. yeah or it's just a, it's just a feeling. Yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, I, I think that is by far the biggest for my seat. Yeah. So how you guys operate, do y'all ever fight? Cause I've never seen y'all fight. On, only physically. <laughs> <laughs> just like, just like digital wildcatters. We have an octagon. Um, <laughs> I would say, and look, that's also been a journey for us. We had never worked together. Um, and we started, you know, the company together and, and learned how to operate together. Uh, I would say 
you know, Jeremy and I were and remain great friends, uh, you know, kind of throughout all this. And, uh, you know, that's what, that, that is one thing that has remained you know, very much consistent. We disagree all the time, like all the time, uh, but not in a bad way. It's in a healthy way. And it's a way where we both respect one another and we challenge each other and we push, pull, et cetera. And I think we end up in a better outcome because of that. And I would say, no, and you know, no plans for this. But if I were to ever do something again in the future, you don't want somebody that thinks the exact same way as you. I think that is not a good recipe for success. You want somebody that is kind of truly that yin yang, which I think Jeremy and I have been able to accomplish. Hundred percent agree. I mean, Mike Hines, my former business partner, Kane, greatest guy on the planet. I mean, really is like my brother, you know, to this day and all. But I think one of the issues we had is we were probably too much alike in in terms of things because when you look at the great kind of private equity fund phone firms out there that have grown up they always have people with complementary skills and they usually talk about the outside person and the inside person the inside person is you know detailed big on processes etc outside tells a great story the fundraiser probably couldn't identify a good investment opportunity if you spotted them, <laughs> you know, something. But uh, yeah, no, it's, I think that's, that's really well, uh, well put. And you guys have a great uh, built-in curmudgeon is maybe what we'll call him, but we'll say that with love with Mark Mills. Yeah. Cause Mark's a great resource. Yeah. I think he's a great skeptic. Right. Um, Mark, much, much nicer than yeah. curmudgeon. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. I just wanted to call you a curmudgeon. Uh, and, and look, I, I think uh, that is extremely valuable when you're investing in technology companies uh, because technology by its very nature is complex. It's new. Um, and so I think you have to have a skeptical eye towards, you know, is this real? If it is real, how, how big could it be, et cetera? And, and Mark, is, uh, Mark is very good at that. So what are investors saying these days in terms of, Energy, investing in private equity, all of the above. Yeah, I would say at the highest level, um, we're not actively fundraising at the moment, so we don't have you know kind of a hundred percent pulse on things. But what we have heard is it remains challenge from an allocation perspective, uh, and I think what we've seen of late is the general view that okay, public marks have come down. Private marks have not come down uh, at the same rate, so now private appears to be over-allocated. So as you think about allocating to private equity, venture capital, et cetera, it feels like it's a higher bar because those allocations are out of whack. Um, I think that's the short-term headwind for any private allocation. I think that ultimately uh, you know, uh, trues up. Uh, and then after that, I, I would say we have seen, it kind of goes back to the generalist investor looking at our portfolio uh, you know, from an acquirer or investor perspective, we are seeing more folks say, okay, turns out energy is going to be, is here to stay, including oil and gas. What are some interesting ways that we can get exposure to this? And we've had some productive conversations along that. So it kind of goes back to, it feels like it's thawing, but still early innings with a short-term headwind of kind of the allocation denominator effect. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think a lot, I think a lot of the, uh, you know, like an individual investor is just going to speak his or her mind and, you know, be speaking for him or herself. The institutional folks are speaking for a whole institution. Um, and what we hear a lot is, 
hey, I think there's a lot of opportunity in, you know, traditional energy. What do you guys think about that? And then we ask, oh, are, are you, you know, allocating more money there? Is that a place you're investing? Like, oh, no, no, no. I can never get that through the investment committee. Um, but I think there is the early innings of a, all right, I see the opportunity here. Um, and then that, to your point, is then a few quarters away from, all right, I've missed the last few quarters because I'm not allocated enough to this. So I need to allocate more to it. Because I think just to add on to what you said, Ryan, is so private marks haven't come down as much. That's typical GPs not marking down their portfolio probably as, as quickly as they should have. But actually, the energy portfolio have, has gone up. So it, you feel over allocated to private mm -hmm. and to some degree institutions feel over allocated to energy because yeah. the energy has performed well and there's mm -hmm. probably more backing up the marks up in in energy and so it, it is some wood to, to chop there but then you know at the end of the day if you ask ken hirsch back in 1998 raising you know ngp3 he'd say yeah it's really hard you know it's always been hard <laughs> raising funds is challenging especially private funds that are locked up for 10 years. You know? Yeah. And that's a real commitment. Yeah. And I think it's, I think the other thing you guys brought up that's important for folks to understand, because I don't think a lot of people do is a CIO, a chief investment officer at an institution creates a portfolio mix. And their whole goal is not to make money on every investment they make, because if they do that, they probably screwed up, even though that would be a good outcome. The process would have been bad. Right. And uh, they want to they've run the scenario where oil goes to minus 37. Well, I mean, it's cheap gasoline in the Amazon trucks are going to be flooding everywhere. So I, I make sure I own some Amazon, too. I always joke that it's concentration that makes you rich. It's diversification that keeps you there. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of an important thing that you brought up is, is this portfolio effect. And, you know, I'll get some pushback on Twitter or something where somebody will say, oh, but, you know, you did a dumb deal and, or whatever. And it's like, well, my clients were paying me for energy exposure. Well, you should make money on every deal. And I go, do you want to make money on life insurance? I mean, that's something you want to lose money on, mm -hmm. you know, because you hope to be, live to be 85 or 90 or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a different it's a different way to look at it. An individual investor versus actually an institution. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. And it, that that kind of that affects uh, our psyches a little bit because, look, our big thing is. We want to go invest in the things that we told our LPs we were going to go invest in. Um, you know, if we told you we were going to go invest in energy technology and then we went and, you know, bought a commercial real estate building, I, I would feel pretty bad about that. Um, but look, we want to go make good investments into good companies that are doing exactly what we said we were going to do. And you as an LP have decided you want exposure to that. Um, I think where I think where you get. Uh, into you know trouble or or into uh, a difficult situation with your LPs as a GP is when you stray from that and and you start you know doing things that you you said you wouldn't do and and that's a, so that that's something we're very focused on so even 
you know, even times when there are good days when we feel like we've made our LPs money, there are not good days, which are, you know, very challenging when we feel like we have lost our LPs money. Um, but through that, as long as you're going and investing in the things you said you were going to invest in, giving exposure that you said you were going to give, and and then you can go to sleep reasonably well at night. Half your job's to make money. The other half is not to look stupid. And style drift is the quickest way to look yeah. stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's question number one. What do you guys know about a real estate building? You yeah. Know? And so, all right, let's close this down. I told you I was going to ask you this question. I'll let either one of you go first, but I'm going to make you energies are of the whole wide world. You get to put in place one policy law edict, whatever you want to call that. Lay it on me. I would remove all subsidies and that includes any tax advantages. So just make the market free across the energy spectrum. Interesting. That's that's kind of David Rams and Woods take is at the at the end of the day, let's free up all the subsidies, maybe even add some tweaks to to deal with reliability type stuff. Okay. Solar wind, you gotta be able to you got to be able to provide electricity for 48 straight hours um, to the grid or you pay a penalty or something. So to, I think so, you just get rid of the subsidies and that take, gets taken care of because yeah. the people look, I mean, you know, you're X, Y, Z governor of a state and you're, you're not going to stay governor very long if the power is shutting off every other day. Uh, so I think that, you know, politics on the market will take care of the reliability part. I, I think the subsidies create unreliability because you get weird outcomes. When you subsidize things, you get weird outcomes. Um, and those weird outcomes lead to a lack of reliability. Gotcha. So energy libertarian, we got it here. All right. Uh, honestly, it's, it's not, I was honestly going to say the same thing, um, which doesn't, which doesn't seem like we think differently and challenge. one <laughs> <Yeah>. another. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I tend to agree and just let, let the best man, you know, when is it released to energy source? And I think nuclear would be a big part of that. Um, and maybe I should, maybe the tweak is remove subsidies and, and you know, significant regulations and restrictions around things like nuclear, um, obviously within reason. But uh, I think, I think with that, I think nuclear becomes a bigger part. I think the general cost of energy comes down. And I think security increases. The one thing playing, maybe, maybe is playing, Secretary of Energy within y'all's administration uh, that I could actually be talked into, and I get the slippery slope argument, and that that that's ultimately why this may wind up being a bad idea. I could actually live with a carbon tax. I mean, because hydrocarbon pollution, even the most ardent supporter of of the energy business would acknowledge driving behind a car that's blasting some smoke at you is pollution. You know, so I could I could actually live in the framework of let's get rid of all subsidies. Maybe we put some reliability type constraints on power sources or maybe not. Maybe that's just yeah. mandated by that. I could also live with a carbon tax of some sort just because there is a cost to that. I think I think broadly defining that cost would be tough, but and broadly people want clean air, people want less emissions. Uh, you know, I, it wasn't by government edict or regulation that people started using a lot more natural gas when it became cheaper instead of coal. 
Um, it was just that, well, natural gas is now the same price as coal and natural gas is cleaner and that's kind of nice. So we're just going to use that. Um, you know, I, I, it, there were, there are a, gov- a lot of government edicts around cars and stuff, but like, you know, today, I think most people want an efficient, it, saying it with a gasoline car, want an efficient gasoline engine that gets high mileage, that isn't wasteful, that isn't putting out a bunch of exhaust. They, they like a cleaner car. Um, so I, I think people, when they get, you know, rich enough, they want nicer things. And one of those nice things is clean air. So I, I think that that happens naturally. And I think most of most of the clean air we've seen, the declines in emissions that we've seen in the United States has been because of the market working, because and in large part because of natural gas working um, and because people want cleaner stuff, uh, more more efficient stuff. But then, you know, my my qualm with the carbon tax is, all right, so you tax everyone in the United States for their use of carbon. Fine. Um, I think that just makes us less competitive on the on the global scale. And yeah, maybe you convince every other country on earth to put up a similar carbon tax. I just don't, I don't believe that actually happens. I think that's a fairy tale land, just like, you know, my, my fairy tale of, of my, you know, libertarian energy policy. Um, I know that doesn't ever happen, but we got to be honest that other countries are not going to follow suit here on the carbon tax. And so, yes, we can go tax ourselves. And yes, that I think that will reduce carbon emissions because taxation, whenever you tax something, you get less of it. Um, but I don't know that that makes this country better. Um, and some people just don't care, I guess, if this country's better. Uh, they, they care more about, you know, making sure that the earth is healthy and safe and et cetera. And look, I, I get that argument, but I think we have to be prepared to say that the United States will be weaker and more, you know, less independent uh, with a carbon tax than without one. Fair enough. Fair enough. This was funny. So Toby Rice came to our Fuse conference and he was one of the keynote speakers and he laid out, he does a really nice job of laying out the case for natural gas and what it's done and what it could do for worldwide emissions. And after he gave his speech, he did a live CNBC interview. So he's on the stage at Fuse, hooked up, doing the interview and the reporter that ended the conversation with Toby said, and that was Toby Rice, CEO of EQT from what appears to be a concert in Houston, <laughs> Texas. So uh, anyway, we're like, okay, that's cool. Our inter- our energy conference is a concert. So I think the EQT decks are spot on with their, the, you know, the emissions decks they put out. I, I think those are very accurate. Um, and, and how I would think about things of look, Clean things are better. Natural gas is very clean. That's why we use more natural gas. Um, but that's a function of the market. That's not a function of someone taxing something else. That's not a function of the government deciding to subsidize natural gas. Uh, that's a function of we figured out how to make gas cheap. It's a far superior, uh, you know, in terms of its burning and emissions to coal. So we use more of it. Well, you guys were really cool to come on. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate you having us. Absolutely. Yeah, always fun, Chuck. Thanks for having us. There we go. Thanks to the Digital Wildcatters guys. Absolutely. So nice we didn't have mills here to gum everything up. So. <laughs> Just kidding, curmudgeon. 